I want to begin with a reflection, a reflection of the reality of our human experience. I think one of the experiences of humanity is profound, a profound sense of isolation and loneliness. Now, some of us, um, some of you guys, uh, regularly go down to London. I, I went down to London this week, and I was reminded again, you go down to London, and uh, it's great up north, isn't it? It's, uh, apart from that, there is that reminder that in a mass of people, there can be a profound sense of isolation and loneliness. It doesn't have to be down in London. That doesn't have to be in the kind of bustling metropolis. The same can happen in our experience. You could be here this afternoon, surrounded by friends, surrounded by family, and yet deep down inside, there is that profound sense of, where am I? Who am I? I am isolated. And for all of the pretensions of friendship and relationship, I am a lonely person. I want to think about that in the light of this text this afternoon. It's something which again repeats itself in our cultural expressions. I'll take, take some of you back to song that you remember. Um, Simon and Garfunkel, Sound of Silence. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more. People talking without speaking. People hearing without listening. People writing songs that voices never share. No one dared disturb the sound of silence. I think that speaks really powerfully and poignantly. That kind of artistic openness of heart to the reality of our experience. The other great band to really feel sad with, <laughs> I think, is Radiohead. How about this one? The emptiest of feelings, disappointed people clinging onto bottles. When it comes, it's so, so disappointing, let down and hanging around. You know, having experienced what we've just experienced, the joy of singing together, the belonging, that sense of oneness, to find that that same expression of the reality of our hearts is used in the medium of song is a tragic thing, isn't it? And yet, at the same time, I think the psalmists very often reveal that depth of emptiness and hopelessness. Where do we turn? Where do we look to? And how can we know that there is something more? Let's have a look at what we see in our reading. What we, we'll open up at verse 12, and the first thing that we see is a deep relational connectedness. That's the first thing that we see. Not obvious, but I'm going to kind of unpack it in a way which hopefully we can see a deep relational connectedness. Let's put it into context. Let's read it as a narrative, the events of the life of Jesus. Let's read what's going on and place it. They've reached a critical point in the Jewish, new, in the Jewish year. They're about to celebrate Passover. Passover is that moment where all of the Jewish people uh, in one evening, they eat together and they remember the 
the covenant promise that God had made to preserve and to keep His people and the remarkable way that God kept that covenant promise by releasing them and delivering them from Egypt all that time back. There is that sense of identity. There is that sense of belonging. We, here we are in first century um, Judah, uh, and yet what we actually are experiencing is a connectedness to 2,000 years ago in Egypt. We are part of that group of people who were preserved and saved. Passover is that expression. It's a way of saying this is what we are. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. We see this, this kind of strange set of experiences. The disciples are conscious that they're to celebrate the Passover, but they're a, a gang of people who don't have any real residence in, the, in Jerusalem, and they're saying, what, what, what do we do? And he says, right, go and find a guy who's carrying some water. It's, it's, almost like a, it's almost like a strange set of instructions. Go and find a guy carrying water. Follow him, and then he's going to go to a house. When you get to that house, ask the guy who owns that house, where is your room so that the master can use it for the Passover? And he'll say, it's upstairs, it's already prepared. That's, that's just strange, isn't it? It's just a strange set of things that happen. What is going on and what is Mark saying? It is absolutely fundamental to the whole of the narrative of Jesus. That little set of instructions. It's critical to understanding Jesus, because they, He says, go and see this, this will happen, then that will happen, and then everything will be ready for us. Why? Because everything that is occurring is precisely as Jesus intends and preordains for it to be. He is here, and He is on a mission that's one of the things that he said time and time again. I'm here to do the will of my Father. My Father and I are together. We are about a mission. And everything that unfolds is not according to the strange events which I will react to of human experience. It is what I have determined will happen. Understanding that when they go into celebrate the Passover together unfolds the way Jesus intended for it to unfold, explains the next hours where Jesus is taken, where Jesus is tried, where Jesus is crucified. It's a continuation of exactly the same thing. This is Jesus saying, my hour has now arrived. 
This is the time, and this is how it's going to unfold. The Passover is a critical moment, and the fact that they go and they find this place together, as Jesus said, is, is, is Mark saying through the experience of Jesus, this is His action. This is Him doing this. And so we find that there is, there's this remarkable moment. But what we actually see, and I'm going to jump right to the end of their experience in verse 26, we see the conclusion of this Passover meal. In verse 26, it says, when they had sung a hymn to, together, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I don't think there would be many of us who believe and love and trust in Jesus who would not have wanted to have been there that night. <laughs> there, is, there is a profound intimacy. There is a oneness. There is a togetherness. There is a sharing of a really powerful, dramatic moment and it is Jesus with His disciples which concludes with them singing a song together. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have had any musical instruments. They would have just broken into song in that Hebraic meter, whatever it is, which I don't understand, but it sounds both strange yet powerful. And voices raise together and they sing together and there is that. It almost creates this kind of culmination of the past hours where the intimacy of the relationship of Jesus with His disciples is expressed in a song that they sing together. There is deep, deep relational connectedness. Jesus and His disciples, nobody else, it's just us, and we're together in this moment. But at the same time, there was during those few hours a deep relational connectedness, but there was also a strange enactment. And I would say it was disturbing, and some of the, some of the language and the words that are used are disturbing. First, event of the evening which was disturbing was what Jesus did. Look at verse 18. While they were reclining at the table eating, He said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. <laughs> the beauty of the moment is shattered with the words of Jesus where He turns and He says, one of you is going to betray me. <laughs> Talk about a bombshell. I, I, that intimacy, that beauty, that moment has just been disrupted by Jesus saying something which for most of them there with the exception of one, it would have been awful and terrible to hear. That is, there is no way 
that we would do this. And he says, truly, one of you is going to betray me. You know, very often our loneliness, very often our sense of isolation, that feeling of loneliness is rooted in the observing of others being let down or the personal experience of somebody letting us down. And what we would tend to do is, and we, we would say, if that, I'm not going to allow that to happen to me. It's not going to happen to me again. Or I'm not going to allow that, that happened to them, to happen to me. And therefore, I'm going to step back. I'm not going to risk being close to people. I'm not going to be close to the possibility. I'm not going to give myself relationally. Because I might get, I might get hurt. And, and the result of that is that we step back from relationship. Because of the possibility that we might be hurt. Now, I want us to connect for a moment the idea that Jesus said to his disciples, two disciples, go and find a man carrying water, and he's going to lead you to a house, and then upstairs there's going to be a room. Jesus knew exactly how things were going to work themselves out, and he gave himself for three years, unreservedly, to a group of people knowing that one of them would betray him. He did not step back from that relational connectedness. He did not step back from that hurt and reality of pain. He, he, he entered into that. He gave himself to that. He worked completely the opposite way to the way we would tend to work. I know that this is going to happen, and I am going to give myself to this. And the pain and the hurt and the isolation, the experience of loneliness, is what I will give myself to, rather than step away from. There's going to be a betrayal among the twelve. Verse 19, they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Seems to me as though there's a pause and the meal carries on. And then in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There is going to be a betrayal. But take my body and blood. It, it was a strange thing that Jesus did. He'd said something which rocked them. And then they carried on eating and then just completely out of the blue. 
He said, right now, take this bread, this is my body. Take this cup, this is my blood. This is the new promise that I am making with you. When did he do that? When did Jesus say those words? He said those words at the very moment where they were sharing the Passover together. The promise that they were relying on from the past is being replaced by a new promise that he makes in the present. He doesn't say, let's celebrate the Passover, let's finish now. We love that, we cherish that. He said, right in the middle of that feast, he breaks that feast. He shatters that feast and enters into it with a whole new promise. There is something remarkable that went on at the Passover. If you read it in Exodus chapter 12, we read that God says to his people, right, cook the lamb uh, and then just get yourselves ready, get yourselves clothed, get your cloak, get your staff, get everything ready, and then all of your family eat together. One of the things that, that, that emerge in the Corban Pesach, which is the Jewish tradition of Passover, was that you, you ate that particular meal in a different way. What you would normally do, what we all tend to do, is we have a, a, a kind of a, you know, that kind of the carvery in the middle of the table, and we take some of that and we put it on our plate and we eat it from our plate. Not the Passover. Not the Passover. The Passover was not to be ate like that. The Passover was be, to be taken centrally from that lamb and straight from the lamb to the mouth. It was an astounding sense of oneness. There's no, there's no kind of preparing my own. We are all in this together. We are eating of this promise together. That was the Passover. And Jesus says, now, you take this bread from me and you eat it. You take this cup from me and you drink it. Don't, don't put it on your plate. Just take it and eat it. Let me replace the lamb. Let me replace the lamb. Why is Jesus doing this? This is not a spoiler because we all know the story. Jesus is doing this because he's saying this is what is going to happen. The body that you see represented here that you eat of and you, you share in and this cup that you drink and share in together as we are one, this is going to be replaced by my physical body. And when you eat and when you drink this, you are saying that you rely on that promise, the promise that is rooted in me. It's a promise which, is, which overturns in one sense the previous promise, and yet at the same time it makes sense of the previous promise. It becomes both a continuation and a disruption. It becomes a, a continuation the fact that God makes promises and keeps them, and keeps His people and protects His people, and it's a, it's a disruption in the sense that it's no longer rooted in a Passover tradition. It's rooted in the reality of a sacrifice which is me. That's astounding what Jesus does. A strange enactment. 
Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. It's a new kingdom. There's a kingdom which you belong to. You will belong to this, you disciples who are sat around me in this room. You will belong to this kingdom when it emerges. And it is moments away, relatively speaking. They sing a song and they go out to the Mount of Olives. There is a strange enactment. Now there is a prophecy of isolation. Look at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, do you see this, the connection with isolation? They've just shared a moment of, of togetherness with Jesus. And now he turns around and he says, that togetherness that you've just experienced is going to be shattered. And it's going to be shattered because the shepherd is going to be struck. The one who holds you together, the one who cares for you, the one who nurtures you. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. Saying, the reality of our human hearts, the reality of our experiences is when, when we are not connected deeply and richly and perfectly and beautifully to the shepherd, we will be scattered. We will be isolated, we will be lonely, we will be by ourselves, we will be sad, we will be disconnected, we will have all of those experiences of what it is to feel that human experience of isolation when we are disconnected from the shepherd. Jesus says, that's what's going to happen, and the shepherd is going to be struck, and Peter declares, even if all fall away, I will not. I love Peter. Um, he expresses the kind of stuff that I wish I had the courage to express. <laughs> he, he expresses that kind of, do you know what, I am committed to this. But what he did not understand is Peter you cannot be committed to this. It's impossible for you to stay close. You have got to fail as well. Because Jesus has got to be the Savior of all and He has got to be by Himself. You can't be there. One, because your heart will not allow you to be there really, even though you think it will. But secondly, if the shepherd is to be a true Savior of all, he cannot be helped in any single way. He must be alone. <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder, you know, when, you, when, you, when little ones, um, they kind of say something that really they shouldn't say or they shouldn't do. And, and you say, I, re I really wish they hadn't said that. <laughs> because... I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to make it clear to them that they're wrong. 
that they, that they can't do this. I remember once when one of ours was little, um, he pinched a sweet. And, and in pinching the sweet, he then said that, that he hadn't pinched the sweet. And I'm like, oh, please, please don't say that you didn't pinch the sweet. Please don't. Because if you say that, I'm going to have to show you that you are wrong. And in a strange sense, all of my love goes out. And at the same time, that necessary correction comes into play as well. I wonder whether Jesus felt like that with Peter at this moment. Peter, you do not know what you are saying, but you are going to end up enduring an experience that will mark you for life, but it will be for your good. I wonder whether some of us can say, I know what that feels like to have experienced that gung-ho idea that I can do this, I can do that, and God has taken us down a peg, not because He's crushing us, but because He's loving us and saying, you cannot do this, but I can. And so Peter says, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. There's a re really clever little play there, isn't it? The rooster's going to uh, crow twice, but you will, you will deny me a multiple more. You will deny me three times. It will be absolutely undeniable that you have denied me. <laughs> if that makes sense. It, you can never get away from the idea, well, it was just a passing slip of the tongue. It wasn't really what I meant. No, Peter, you will deny me clearly, emphatically, undeniably, three times. A reality and a necessity. Peter states his commitment to fight to the death, yet Jesus says he will deny him. And what, G what Peter actually experiences is just that sense of isolation. Later on, we find that Jesus is being tried, and he, Peter denies knowing Jesus three times with curses when he, is, he has the finger pointed at him by a young servant girl. Not, not threatening at all. It wasn't like he was surrounded by a bunch of heavies who were about to beat him to a pulp until he, he was willing to admit that he knew Jesus. It was a little servant girl, and he denied Jesus with curses. And at that moment, in all of the stuff that was going on, in all of the chaos of Jesus' trial, Jesus turned and he looked eyeball to eyeball with Peter. You know, I think many interpret that, that Jesus was accusing. I don't, I don't believe that that was what was going on. I believe Jesus was turning to Peter, and in that moment of his denial, Jesus turns to him and he says, do you see? That's why you need me, because I'm doing this for you. You see, what we actually see here 
in all of this? Is our faithlessness, our isolationist behavior, which results in us being scattered and disconnected on the one hand? And on the other hand, what do we see? The profound faithfulness of Jesus. He does. He commits. He endures when everybody's scattered, when all have fallen away, when they've said they'll do things and they don't do things. Jesus is the one who commits right to the very conclusion of all that is necessary for us to be brought back into relationship with Him. He dies so that we can be connected to the living Jesus. Paul puts it like this, and this in a way connects us right back to Mark chapter 1 verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the beginning in one sense because the fullness of what it meant is worked out later on. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died. For who? For the ungodly. That's who he died for. See, he knew how it was going to unfold. And his love, commitment, compassion for us was not dependent on our faithfulness. It wasn't dependent, it wasn't contingent. He didn't say, Do you know what? I'll die for you as, young, as long as you love me. You know, you show that you love me, and then I'll think about dying for you didn't work like that. He said, I'll die for you when you're ungodly. I'll die for you when you're denying me. I'll die for you when you are isolated and lonely because you are disconnected from me. That's when I will die for you, when you are ungodly, not connected with God, not close to God. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. It does happen. It's what Paul is saying. There's times when you are prepared to lay down your life for someone who is good and someone who you love. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is great news. That's why Mark says this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. You see, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. That in His death, us isolationist, fearful separationists who won't give ourselves and have that deep sense of isolation, yet a yearning to belong, can be reunited. What we have shared this evening as we have shared in bread and wine. It's a commitment. That's why Jude said, this is for people who truly have embraced this. We are saying, I am eating of this because that's mine. I believe that Jesus is mine. And I believe that I can know true, ultimate human flourishing when once again I am connected to God in Jesus Christ and my human relationships make sense again. 
What's the outcome of that? Do you know at least one of the things is that we should strive until we are perfected. We should strive to live out towards each other the way Jesus has lived out towards us. He says, I'll die for you when you are when you are a million miles away from me, I'll die for you. I'll draw you in. I'll, I'll, I'll not make my sacrifice contingent on you proving that you are worthwhile. Imagine if we all behaved in that way towards each other. Imagine if we all said, you know what, my love for you is not going to be contingent on whether you prove that I am justified in giving my love to you. What a transformation! That's what eternity would be like. When there will be no second guessing, no trying to work out what's the motives for what's just been said or done. We will be stripped of all of that prejudging and we will truly be in relationship with each other again. Why? Because we are firstly, ultimately, in relationship with Jesus. Profound isolation, profound separation from God is reversed by this sacrifice that Jesus makes for those who believe. This is the gospel. This is the boundless grace and mercy of God.